Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Trump says he's seriously considering testifying in the House impeachment inquiry. Imagine the ratings, Mr. President. The lead starts right now. Eight witnesses, three days, another phone call, and a changing story. The damning testimony and presidential anger that could surely dominate the week ahead. It's the other call in the impeachment investigation, the one where a diplomat overheard President Trump asking about the investigations. And CNN went to the restaurant in Ukraine where this allegedly all went down. Plus... In the span of a couple days, Mayor Pete goes from Iowa hero to polling at zero among a critical group of voters in a critical state. The troubling lack of support for him in a brand new poll. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin with the politics lead today. It could be the most important week of the impeachment inquiry. Eight current and former Trump administration officials will testify publicly this week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday testimony which could point directly to evidence that President Trump not only wanted Ukraine to open investigations into the Bidens and 2016, but that he did so under the clear threat of withholding a White House visit and hundreds of millions of dollars in U.S. aid that Ukraine desperately wanted. Potentially the most significant witness in this all will be Trump donor and U.S. ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland. In testimony released over the weekend, former National Security Council official Tim Morrison said, that Sondland told him that he had told a top Ukrainian official that, quote, what could help them move the aid was if the Ukrainian prosecutor general would go to the microphone and announce that he was opening the Burisma investigation, also known as the Biden investigation. And that, quote, Ambassador Sondland believed, and at least related to me, that the president was giving him instruction. Now, Sondland has already had to amend his testimony, and no one knows how truthful he's going to be when he testifies, especially given the fact that as CNN's Alex Marquardt now reports for us, President Trump has been attacking multiple other witnesses. This week poised to be the most blockbuster few days so far in the impeachment inquiry. After more revelations from two key players over the weekend, place Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, at the center of the Ukraine scandal because of his direct access to President Trump. We'll all have to wait for Sondland's testimony, which is direct testimony, not testimony of somebody who says they heard from somebody else that somebody else said something. Sondland is set to testify in an open hearing on Wednesday. Former top National Security Council official Tim Morrison testified that Sondland was following the president's orders in demanding Ukraine launch investigations into the Bidens and the 2016 election in exchange for a White House meeting and military aid. He was discussing these matters with the president, Morrison told lawmakers, according to a new transcript of his closed-door testimony released on Saturday. According to Morrison, Sondland was told by the president that Ukrainian President Zelensky must announce the opening of the investigations. Morrison also testified that Sondland spoke to Trump before the July 25th call between the two presidents, in which Trump asked for a favor. We'll be asking him uh, a lot about the events leading up to the July 25th call. 
um, as well as uh, the day of the call and and uh, events subsequent to that, he will be a very, very important witness. Also on that July 25th call was a senior aide in the vice president's office, Jennifer Williams. In the just released transcript of her testimony, she told investigators that parts of the call felt more political than diplomatic. I would say that it struck me as unusual and inappropriate, Williams said. It shed some light on possible other motivations behind a security assistance hold. Williams testifies in public tomorrow. President Trump not waiting, instead attacking her on Twitter as a never-Trumper, without any proof, while also reacting to this comment by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The president could come right before the committee and talk, speak all the truth that he wants. Trump tweeting this morning, I like the idea and will, in order to get Congress focused again, strongly consider it. The president testifying in Congress, of course, almost certainly will not happen. But Speaker Nancy Pelosi is rallying her troops as both sides dig in. She has written a letter to Democrats today saying that none of them came to Congress to impeach a president. But President Trump, she says, has abused his office for political gain at the expense of national security. Pelosi goes on to say that the verdict on the president cannot wait until the next election, Jake, because Trump has already jeopardized that election. All right, Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Uh, Let me uh, chew over this with you guys. Let's just dispatch with this first item quickly. (laughs) Raise your hand if you think that the chance that President Trump will testify publicly is zero. Oh, oh, interesting. Zero 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 is hard. hard. You don't operate in certainty here, Jake. Wait, can we add a qualifier? (laughs) In person, under oath. This is the greatest reality I'm just saying. So you think that there's actually a chance that he might do it, and you do too. I what? mean, like a point five zero. Point five percent. Are just hedging your bets. Okay. <laughs> and you think he might? Let me ask. And that he might apologize someday to somebody. Yes. <laughs> no. Hey, wait a minute. This is not, not your zero. show. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry. Let's Only the moderator can do that. I'm just surprised. I'm really surprised. Okay. Um, so, Jeremy, let me let's start with Jennifer Williams. She is uh, the Vice President Pence aide. Yes, she is assigned from the State Department, but Vice President Pence and his team picked her to be yeah. on the team. Yeah. Uh, he says that she's a never Trumper. Uh, And what did the vice president have to say uh, in response when asked about the president attacking his staff? Yeah, look, at this point, we've come to expect the president would go on to attack members of his own administration who are testifying about his activities in this impeachment inquiry. Uh, What we had not seen so far was this response from the vice president's office. I reached out for comments to say, hey, does the vice president have any response to the president attacking one of his advisors? And the response that I got from Katie Waldman, the vice president's press secretary, was Jennifer is a State Department employee. Now, while that may technically be true, She is a State Department employee. She is detailed to the vice president's office, and her current title is special advisor to the vice president on Europe and Russia. So, uh, you know, the vice president's office clearly trying to put some distance here. Uh, I did speak with a couple folks in Pence World today who were uh, disappointed that, uh, uh, you know, Jennifer Williams was kind of put aside in this way, but also not surprised necessarily. It's not like the vice president is going to suddenly get crosswise with the president uh, over one of his advisors testifying on the Hill. And what's interesting about this is uh, I understand the president calling people never Trumpers. That's his, his, his thing. But these are people who actually probably voted for him, definitely risked some things to go work for his administration. I'm talking about Ambassador Bill Taylor, who came out of retirement to work for President Trump. Uh, obviously, Jennifer Williams. Uh, you don't do this without some sort of personal risk. I mean, we have no idea what it's going to look like in 10 years to have Trump White House on your resume. Maybe it'll be the greatest thing ever, but maybe not. I mean, these are people, particularly the ones who have been testifying in open open hearings for the last several days, are people who have 
been in public service for decades. They have served under presidents of both parties. Democrats do make it a point of asking them, you know, when they're on their oath, are you never Trumpers? And they respond no. But we've seen the president go hard after the witnesses. And this is something that has made particularly uh, Republicans, I mean, all members of Congress pretty uncomfortable. Um, it, Republicans have tried to rationalize it by saying the president has free speech, rights to say whatever he wants about the witnesses. But a lot of Republicans, particularly after his tweets going after Ambassador Ivanovich on Friday, Friday, have distanced themselves from that kind of rhetoric. They want to be able to fight, be able to defend the president, but this is something that they really don't want to touch at this point. Mary Catherine, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi sent a letter to Democrats this afternoon responding to some of the Republican criticism, saying uh, there are also some who say no serious wrongdoing was committed because the military assistance to Ukraine was eventually released. The fact is the aid was only released after the whistleblower exposed the truth of the president's extortion and bribery, and the House launched a formal investigation. Yeah, I mean, the timeline matters, and the fact that the aid went matters. The, those two things both matter, and I think you have a stronger case if the aid does not go um, and plans are not changed. As to uh, Williams, I think this is an issue with the Trump administration that you've seen throughout, this like shifting, extremely transactional loyalties. Uh, there is no limb you go out on, he ain't going to saw off, whether you're a supporter or somebody in the administration. Um, and I, but I don't think it matters so much in this particular instance as it does in a broader sense of, of the, the sort of drip drip of him reacting in, in this in this sort of bombastic way to everything as the impeachment goes on. He only makes things worse for himself with the tweets. But this is the other side as of it. Know. Having been someone who was called in to testify in the uh, Whitewater in front of Penn Star, you're, it's terrifying. It's personally terrifying. They're questioning your integrity. They're in questioning. I mean, that's how it feels. So I can't, you know, in front of Congress, even worse, you're paying your own legal bills. So to your point, Jake, these are people who at their own, at some risk to themselves, you know, decide to, I'm going to serve my country in this way. And now they're paying legal bills. They're being attacked. But I mean, I can imagine if Bill Clinton would have attacked people who had to go in and testify. I mean, there was none of that. And so it just completely just for these people to then have to deal with that and then go back to work. And let's be honest, Secretary Pompeo is not very supportive speaking, of these people. Speaking of Pompeo, take a listen to the Secretary of State Pompeo asked today if he agreed uh, with President Trump's tweets attacking the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Maria Ivanovich. Here's Pompeo's answer. I'll defer to the White House about uh, particular statements and the like. I, I don't have anything else to say about the Democrats' impeachment proceedings. So not exactly standing up for his own uh, people. No, and that's why what we saw from the vice president's office was kind of part of a pattern here. Uh, and, and as Karen is pointing out, you know, Democrats are going to raise this question of witness intimidation with uh, how the president has treated not just Jennifer Williams, but other witnesses. We saw Adam Schiff do that kind of in live motion um, during Marie Ivanovich's uh, testimony. So, look, there, there are no Republicans or no White House officials who I think are happy with the president doing this. But that doesn't mean that they're publicly condemning it either. No, they're demonstrating fealty, as we're used to now. CNN gets uh, an inside look at the Ukrainian restaurant where that phone call between EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland and President Trump was overheard. Plus, House lawmakers investigating whether President Trump lied in a separate investigation. About what? That's next. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the House is now investigating whether President Trump lied to special counsel Robert Mueller. Trump told Mueller in written statements that he did not Recall discussing WikiLeaks with Roger Stone, but during Stone's trial last week in which he was found guilty, former Trump campaign deputy chair Rick Gates testified that in the middle of the 2016 campaign, Trump and Stone talked about information coming soon that could help Trump's campaign. At the same time, Stone was trying to get details about what was coming from WikiLeaks. 
Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas. He's on the House Intelligence Committee, which is, of course, leading the impeachment investigation. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Uh, have you seen any conclusive proof that President Trump lied to special counsel Robert Mueller about this? I mean, he said he didn't recall, which is kind of a lawyer trick for not answering right. a question. Yeah, well, as you remember, Jake, uh, the president refused to go in front of and give live testimony to special counsel Bob Mueller and instead submitted written answers to certain questions. In those questions, oftentimes he would say that he didn't recall. So, you know, of course, my mind has been wrapped up in this latest uh, impeachment inquiry, but I'd have to go back and check his responses to see whether he was truthful, truthful or not about that. The White House has cited a, a Department of Justice policy that a sitting president cannot be indicted um, so if Democrats conclude that President Trump did lie to Mueller, I guess that would be added to the impeachment proceedings, I guess, or, or, or to the, the articles of impeachment, but not necessarily any, any legal action would be taken. You wouldn't ask DOJ to intervene. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great issue that we're going to have to take up and figure out whether, in fact, we believe the president did lie. Uh, and certainly if he did, there should be consequences for that. Uh, and you know, we'll have to consider it in the articles. Um, so you're going to get to question all of the witnesses this week, eight of them uh, in three days. Much of the focus, obviously, on Ambassador Gordon Sondland, who other witnesses say claim to be taking direction from the president directly uh, and that he told the Ukrainians directly, Sondland, to announce the Biden investigations if they wanted that aid to go through. What are you planning to ask Sondland about this week? Yeah, that's right. And now, each of the witnesses, the ones that we've heard uh, in the skiff and then the ones that the American people have been able to hear from, have affirmed this idea that there was something wrong with uh, the president asking for a political favor and trying to trade government resources for that favor. But Ambassador Sondland is a key witness. Uh, he had obviously direct contact with the president of the United States about this. And so in terms of what we want to know, we want to know what orders President Trump gave him to ask for the investigation of the Bidens. Uh, and why it looked like they were trading a, a government resources for a political favor to take out a primary rival in the 2020 elections. Are all eight witnesses, including Gordon Sondland, expected to show up and testify as opposed to blowing off the hearings or pleading the fifth? Yeah, so, so far as I know, that's the case. Uh, we certainly hope that everybody will step forward and cooperate. Uh, and again, I think you see each of them is one piece of the puzzle here. Uh, the president has also tried to block other people from testifying. People like John Bolton have refused to come forward. Rick Perry has refused to come forward. Mick Mulvaney. But even with the evidence that we have, uh, as you can see from the, the polling and the surveys, the American people are convinced that the president has done something wrong. And the, the poll I saw today said that 51 percent of Americans believe that the president should not only be impeached, but that he should be removed from office. And there's more evidence to come. One of the witnesses set to testify this week is uh, Jennifer Williams. She's a State Department employee uh, and an aide and advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. President Trump tweeted, quote, tell Jennifer Williams, whoever that is, to read both transcripts of the presidential calls and see the just released statement from Ukraine. Then she should meet with the other never Trumpers who I don't know and mostly never even heard of and work out a better presidential attack, unquote. Um, well, first of all, obviously, Jennifer Williams listened to the call. She doesn't need to read the transcript, but she listened to it directly. Uh, but she said she found it inappropriate. I guess bigger picture, though, do you see that as witness intimidation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the president uh, trying to bully people, trying to scare them. 
and he's got a huge megaphone, as you know. And so when he tweets something out, you're talking about tens of millions of people, mostly his supporters who follow him, who then jump all over that person on social media, some people who make threats. Uh, so this can turn into a dangerous situation for a witness. So I absolutely believe that it's witness intimidation. Is that a possible count of impeachment? Uh, if it was up to me, it certainly would be. All right, Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas, thank you so much. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you. It is the site of the overheard call between President Trump and the ambassador to the EU. CNN's going to go inside the Ukrainian restaurant where it all happened next. Stay with us. We're back with the world lead now and a look inside the restaurant in Ukraine where an embassy official says he overheard President Trump on a phone call asking about the investigations he wanted from Ukraine. President Trump was talking to Ambassador Gordon Sondland and CNN's Fred Plaikin joins me live outside that restaurant in Kiev, Ukraine. And, and Fred, uh, we're not just showing off here that we have reporters all over the world. Uh, what's interesting is that the setup doesn't seem ideal for a sensitive call with an American president. You're absolutely right, Jake. It certainly is a very beautiful restaurant, but for a sensitive call, it might not necessarily be the best place. It's basically, I was inside earlier today, it's basically two levels of very open spaces. And when we walked in there earlier today, you could hear the chatter at certain tables there. There's no separation walls, no nothing. And so basically everybody can hear you if you're inside that restaurant having a very loud phone call in English. But I want to show you something else if you just come with me. Because one of the uh, places that apparently Gordon Sondland was uh, as he was inside the restaurant was right here. This is the terrace area where he was sitting with three of his associates from the embassy. And that terrace area is closed right now because it's winter. But that terrace area is also right next to a road that you can see right here. So if you're sitting on that terrace area, that means people from the sidewalk can hear you and people from inside the restaurant can hear you as well. The other thing that we found really interesting is when we were inside is that there is a huge amount of staff members walking around there. They all wear traditional Ukrainian clothes. It's a, it's a restaurant that really prides itself on great service, but you're surrounded the entire time by people that could potentially be listening in as well. But the most interesting thing, Jake, that the staff here told us is they said, look, Gordon Sondland, uh, the U.S. ambassador to the EU, he would be a very important guest here, but certainly not the most important one that they would have had. In fact, the country's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, he comes here all the time. And so if you're having a phone call that's very sensitive in English, in a very loud way, there's a pretty good chance that potentially uh, Ukrainian officials and potentially staff members of Zelensky might be hearing you as well. So a beautiful restaurant, not necessarily a great place for a sensitive call, Jake. Some real questions about operational security. Fred Pleitkin in Kiev, thanks so much. Appreciate it. CNN has just learned that David Holmes the person, the uh, official in the embassy who was inside that restaurant and overheard the call with President Trump, is now going to publicly testify on Thursday. And on Wednesday, we're going to hear from Ambassador Sondland himself. He will testify and he could reveal if and how President Trump was calling the shots, as CNN's Erica Hill reports. Three days, eight witnesses. This has been an intense period for the House Intelligence Committee, and this coming week could be its final act and an increasing focus on one man, Gordon Sondland. He's the one who seemed to have an awful lot of access to the president. Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union and a million-dollar Trump donor, is scheduled to testify on Wednesday amid new questions about his role. In the presence of my staff at a restaurant, Ambassador Sondland called President Trump and told him of his meetings in Kiev. On that call, 
just one day after the now infamous July 25th exchange that led to the whistleblower's complaint. I made a perfect call, not a good call, perfect call. Ambassador Sondland told President Trump Ukrainian President Zelensky would do anything Trump asked, including launch an investigation into the Bidens. Bono, I understand you have new information. A bombshell confirmed late Friday in closed-door testimony by a staffer who overheard it. The Gordon Sondland testimony is going to be highly significant because he has already amended his testimony to now say that he told a top Ukrainian official that security assistance from the United States, roughly $400 million, was likely tied to the ask for investigations. According to multiple witnesses, the reason why he knows that is because of a conversation he had with President Trump. Tim Morrison, a former National Security Council official, set to testify on Tuesday told lawmakers last month Sondland was acting at Trump's direction when he encouraged Ukraine to announce the investigations and described the EU ambassador as a problem, according to newly released transcripts. New details are piling up quickly in the impeachment inquiry. Morrison listened in on the July 25th call, as did Jennifer Williams, an advisor to Vice President Pence, who will also appear Tuesday, and said the call struck her as unusual. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman immediately raised concerns after listening to the July 25th call. He, too, is slated to appear on Tuesday. There is no one star witness that this whole case will rise or fall on, not that we know of right now. But I think Vindman is, is sort of another brick in the wall that House Democrats are trying to build. Former special representative to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, defended the president's actions in closed-door testimony, telling lawmakers there was, quote, no leverage implied. There was no linkage. And I think further testimony and depositions will confirm that uh, multiple times. We've got text messages from Volker and Sondland. Volker's private text message the morning of the July 25th call revealed Ukrainian officials pushing for a White House meeting. Volker writing to an aide for Zelensky, assuming President Z convinces Trump he will investigate get to the bottom of what happened in 2016, we will nail down a date for the visit to Washington. Good luck. On August 9th, Sondland messages Volker. I think POTUS really wants the deliverable. Going on to suggest Volker should ask for the Ukrainian president's aid in crafting a, quote, draft statement so that we can see exactly what they propose to cover. Volker will also appear on Tuesday. Kurt Volker, let's remember, is a former career foreign service officer. Kurt Volker knew what normal foreign policy looks like. The week's final witness, Fiona Hill, is expected to describe what she saw as a nightmare scenario. Private interests driving U.S. policy. High stakes heading into a potentially explosive week of testimony. We are adjourned. And our thanks to Erica Hill for her reporting there. Is the impeachment inquiry changing any minds of any voters in key battleground states? We're going to go live to a county President Trump won by just 109 votes in 2016. Stay with us. Our 2020 lead, many Democrats and Republicans think that impeachment is helping their side. Our new CNN Des Moines Register Mediacom poll of Iowa shows 60% of Republican voters say impeachment will be a political winner for Trump's reelection. A smaller percentage, but still a plurality of Iowa Democrats, 45%, think it will make it easier for their party to win in 2020. CNN's Miguel Marquez is looking at how impeachment is playing in another swing state, Wisconsin. 
third-generation farmer Greg Lohr. Every cow has a place to lay down. On the fence. In 2020, what are you going to do? Still undecided. Dairy cows and harvesting an already late crop, a bigger worry than impeachment. I think they should just forget about that and just worry about the issues at hand and try to help people. I mean, they're just, there's going to be a new election and another year, I guess. On impeachment, Sauk County, Wisconsin, northwest of Madison, divided as ever. Farmland and picture postcard towns where the Ringling Brothers got their start. In 2016, candidate Trump won this rural county by 109 votes. Doris Lohr is an independent who supported Hillary Clinton. She dislikes the president, but isn't sure there's enough to remove him from office. You know, we need to be unified. We need to be, we're not making progress in America. We're, we're going downhill. The county's divisions, obvious at a regular Democratic protest of the president, they get support as much as thumbs down among other less polite gestures. Mike and Carrie Walker, co-owners of the Touchdown Tavern, both describe themselves as moderate conservatives. Both voted third party in 2016. She's opposed to abortion rights, but is considering a Democrat. Can either of you see yourselves voting for a Democrat in 2020? And which one, if so? (laughs) Boy, that was a pained expression. It is pain. I will tell you, I love Andrew Yang. Obviously, he's very smart. Oh, and he's funny. On impeachment, they haven't decided whether the president crossed the line. I don't think it's a witch hunt. I don't think it's a waste of taxpayer dollars. I don't, um, I think we need to go through this. Veteran, business owner, and independent voter Greg Snell says he doesn't like Trump, you have a good day. but impeachment? Well, I believe it's a pretty drastic step. Whether I like the man or not is immaterial. You know, impeachment is... It's, it's pretty drastic. Dan Shea lives paycheck to paycheck. He voted for Trump. Now, so disillusioned, he switched parties. Where, where is Sauk County right now? A toss-up. He's going to have to come here, work his butt off, and try to win this state back. Now, both parties are going to contest Sauk County and Wisconsin heavily. The Democrats have their convention here. The Republicans say it's trending more conservative, so they think they can win it at the end of the day. The way the Electoral College is sort of shaping up, those 10 electoral votes in this state could decide who sits in the Oval Office. Jake? All right, Miguel Marquez, thanks so much. And Miguel will be checking back in with the voters of Sauk County, Wisconsin, to see how views evolve in that swing district in that key battleground state throughout the impeachment inquiry. Uh, Let's uh, chat about this. And this isn't so theoretical because there have been some elections in the last few weeks. uh, And we've seen Democrats win the Kentucky's governor's race, the Louisiana governor's race, and do really well in Virginia. It doesn't seem like uh, it's necessarily hurting Democrats, although I don't know that it's helping them either. Yeah, I was thinking about it this way. I mean, there was a lot of coverage in the run-ups to the governor's races about how perhaps the Republican candidates were seizing on the impeachment issue as a way to motivate conservative voters, bring out the base. And I think at, we, that did not happen. It did not turbocharge the base, perhaps, like it did, like the Kavanaugh issue did last year. So the problem, also, what the president did there is that he personalized the races so much. I mean, there, it is one thing 
for him to go in and rescue a struggling gubernatorial candidate, particularly we saw that in Kentucky and to a lesser extent in, um, in uh, Louisiana. But he really made it about himself. He made it, you know, do this for me, like go out and vote for me, you know, to send a message to, you know, people nationwide and people in Washington. And that we certainly saw didn't work. And, the, go ahead. and what we've seen also is that the president has struggled to actually convert his base's fervent support for him and, and translate that and push that over to other Republican candidates. Obama had ballot, that problem, right? too. It doesn't really translate necessarily. Right. And, and, and so that's also why I kind of start to think as we prepare for this to head to the Senate side, as we expect the House to impeach President Trump, um, you know, what does that do for Republican support there? The president has been relying on them and he's relying on the fact that, you know, he's got the base. Republicans know they need his base. So, you know, that's that's something to think about. Do you think it's a wash? What do you think? I think it's a little bit of a wash, but look, I think it, the danger, I think, for Trump is that people are just sick of the drama one way. And all of the tweeting that he's been doing, I think, reminds people that he's just it's all about him and this sort of nastiness and tearing people down. And, and we've seen movement among those uh, white suburban women. Yeah, I'll just close with the reminder, which I can now echo President Obama on, where he was talking about policy, but I'm going to talk about impeachment. I think it applies to that the rest of the country, particularly swing states, are not Twitter. And they're going to react differently than liberal Twitter to impeachment and to policy than the rest of the electorate. And oh. Democrats should be careful. Stick around, because we're going to talk about 2020 next after some very good news. Mayor Pete Buttigieg finding out he's polling lower than Marianne Williamson among one key group in one key primary state. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead today, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg riding a high from that new CN Des Moines Register Mediacom poll, putting him at the very top of the heap in Iowa. But today he's in Atlanta working to shore up what another poll shows is a glaring problem with his campaign, his lack of support from a key Democratic but demographic African-American voters. A new Quinnipiac poll from South Carolina shows Mayor Pete has zero percent support among black voters. That's right. Zero. Clearly a drag on his overall numbers in South Carolina, where he's at just 6% with former Vice President, Vice, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden leading the pack at 33%. Uh, let's ch- chat about this. Karen, uh, you're the Democrat at the table. What is the problem? Why can't Pete Buttigieg make any inroads with black voters? They don't trust him. And what you hear is it goes back to his role as mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and the challenges he's had with the black community, and the fact that his answer was, well, we tried and I failed. And people like that answer in the beginning because they said, well, that's being really honest. But if you're black people in that community, you say, yeah, but it's, you know, we took the impact of the fact that you failed. And they really haven't come up with a good answer uh, yet. And so I think that has just sort of continued this lack of trust. And listen, uh, Mary Catherine, to 2020 candidate former Secretary of HUD Julian Castro talking about Mayor Pete. I believe uh, Mayor Buttigieg has a real problem with black voters. If you can't excite people and speak to the African-American voter in a genuine way that's based on a track record, it's too risky to be at the top of the ticket. I don't know about the booty judge part of that, but what do you what do you think about the overall assessment? Look, I think it's I think it's a real problem for any Democratic candidate if they're pulling zero. That's in this demographic. Um, now, there, <clears throat> we've seen instances where black voters in South Carolina and the South, places where they're disproportionately black voters in the Democratic primary, have decided once they see that someone proves his mettle, as a Barack Obama did, right. that they will very quickly move over uh, to, that, to that candidate. Um, but I don't see the opportunity, maybe winning Iowa is the opportunity for Pete Buttigieg to do that, say, look, I'm the guy who could pull this off, and they give him another hearing. But I do think there needs to be an opportunity for him to have another hearing. And let's give him his due for the Iowa poll, which just came out. 
Uh, he's pulling ahead uh, 25 percent. I mean, that is big. The next in line is Senator Elizabeth Warren. She's nine points behind him, 16 percent, followed by Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders at 15 percent. It's not just that he's ahead. He's nine points ahead of his closest rival, Elizabeth Warren, who people a few weeks ago, days ago, thought was the Democratic frontrunner. Really a, a pretty remarkable rise I mean, in a, that state. It's a, and it's a colossal jump, too, from where he had been previously in, in the CNN Register poll, in the Monmouth polls. I think that's what's going to make the debate performance really interesting on Wednesday night. We saw how in the last debate, Elizabeth Warren was really perceived to be the frontrunner just by the fact, or just by one fact, that everybody else in the stage was going after her. So it's, I think it seems pretty clear that Mayor Pete will be a major target of the other candidates uh, on the debate stage on uh, on Wednesday and how they go after him, whether it's his record with the black community, whether it's his um, positions on uh, the Medicare for All issue, it will be really interesting. And, and one of the things he's trying to do is, is uh, cast himself as not necessarily more moderate when it comes to policies, but also, well, that also, but also in temperament. Um, President Obama warned Democratic candidates uh, most voters don't want to tear down mm. the system. Uh, and here is what Mayor Buttigieg Sad to say about that. Presidency that I'm envisioning is one that delivers big and bold changes and answers, but also seeks to do it in a way that can unify and include as many as possible. I just reject the idea that the bigness or boldness of, of, uh, of an idea or a proposal should be measured by how many people it angers. Uh, look, I mean, obviously this kind of gets to the core of this electability argument that the Democratic uh, primary voters have been having this entire cycle. And I, it seems like we are especially entering an election cycle where every voter wants to be a pundit and every voter is looking at this kind of through the lens of an election analyst on TV. Um, and I think that is kind of impacting how people are kind of thinking this through. Again, this also, uh, Pete judge's strong showing in Iowa is also a factor of his ground game, the amount of money that he's been spending on TV there. And there are still several months uh, still to go. Also, one thing that they're still going to happen between now and the Iowa caucuses, a potential impeachment trial in the Senate where you're going to have uh, several senators like Elizabeth Warren on stage there. Pete Buttigieg will be in Iowa. So we'll see how that kind of plays in either one's favor. Let me just close with, or, I agree with President Obama. <laughs> <laughs> he's the, he's, you love saying that. He's the man behind President Trump's hardline immigration policy. And now emails show that Stephen Miller's ties to websites and organizations pushing uh, white nationalist conspiracy theories. Stay with us. International lead today, the White House is standing by Stephen Miller, President Trump's senior advisor, but they are not denying the legitimacy of a trove of emails given by a former editor at Breitbart to the Southern Poverty Law Center that the center says clearly show Miller as a center as a Senate aide before Trump won, pushing a white nationalist agenda. CNN's Sarah Seidner took a look at some of the more than 900 emails between Miller and Breitbart. A trove of emails released by the Southern Poverty Law Center show now senior White House advisor Stephen Miller pushing theories from white nationalist sources to far-right website Breitbart. In one email, dated October 2015, while Miller still worked for then-Senator Jeff Sessions, he touts what he saw as the dangers of allowing hurricane victims from Mexico to come to the U.S. They will all get TPS, he writes. That's temporary protection status. He goes on to write, that needs to be the weekend's big story. TPS is everything. Then he sends then-Breitbart staffer Katie McHugh an article from prominent white nationalist website VDARE of the dangers of TPS. In 2018, 
Well after Miller joined Trump's inner circle, the president ended the TPS status for several countries, including in Central America and Africa. McHugh, who gave the emails to the Southern Poverty Law Center, has recalled on the phone a conversation with Miller to discuss an article about interracial crime on the white nationalist website American Renaissance. He would pull crime statistics from there and then try to funnel that through conservative media in order to target people of color. In another email in July 2015, Miller sent McHugh a link from the website InfoWars, which peddles in conspiracy theories. The InfoWars headline quotes Reverend Franklin Graham, We are under attack. Stop all immigration of Muslims to the U.S. A year and a half later, shortly after the president took office and Miller was in the West Wing, the newly elected president signed an executive order based on this campaign pledge. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. McHugh was fired by Breitbart in 2017 after she tweeted derogatory statements about Muslims. She has since denounced far-right politics and agreed to speak to us via phone only. Breitbart editors expect me to take the editorial direction from Stephen Miller up and including to editing the headlines on news pieces. Ultimately, the Southern Poverty Law Center says Miller's efforts with Breitbart were meant to influence policy. And it worked. What you see in these emails is Stephen Miller creating an appetite for the type of um, anti-immigrant policies the Trump administration has enacted um, through Breitbart News. Miller did not answer specific questions about his emails. Instead, a White House spokesperson sent us this statement. SPLC is engaged in a vile smear campaign against a Jewish staffer. While Mr. Miller condemns racism and bigotry in all forms, those defaming him are trying to deny his Jewish identity, which is a pernicious form of anti-Semitism. It's an absolutely laughable and offensive attack. I think Miller is responding with these charges of anti-Semitism because he has no other answer to it. The Breitbart News told CNN the SPLC claims to have three to four-year-old emails involving an individual whom they fired years ago, and you now have an even better idea why we fired her. That's a quote from them. They say it is not exactly a newsflash that political staffers pitch stories to journalists. But McHugh disputes that, saying that she was basically just a stenographer for Miller. Jake. Sarah Seidner, thanks. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 